right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. Got a, an exciting announcement to make here in line with our guest, which you will hear shortly, uh, which is Mike Kaiser, the developer of uh, golf courses all over the world in very remote locations and one of the most influential uh, people in the game of golf. I'm looking forward to you guys hearing that conversation. Had a great one with him and didn't get to cover all the topics I wanted to and had to rush through uh, some of the sites that he's worked on just because I was so intrigued with uh, the Bandon story and the cool links and all the other stuff he's doing. But uh, we do have a partnership announcement with Charles Schwab. That's who uh, set us up with Mike Kaiser. Uh, they have a series going on called the Challenger Series. And I want you guys to go to schwabgolf.com and check out these videos. I'm telling you, these were the videos that convinced us that we wanted to work with these guys. And they're doing some really cool things with the game of golf. Uh, starting with, in a couple weeks, the Charles Schwab Challenge at Colonial. We are going to be at out there on site. Uh, we got a bunch of content coming out that week. and uh, A podcast coming. On a, on a person that is highly tied to the area, as well as some videos. Uh, we sent Neil and Randy out to play the horrible horseshoe as many times as possible to see how many over par they are. So really excited to announce our uh, partnership with Charles Schwab. Looking forward to doing some cool things with them this year, as well as being involved in the Charles Schwab Cup, uh, some on the PGA Tour champions. So uh, with that in mind, I want you guys, go, seriously, go to schwabgolf.com, and I want you to check out these videos. We're going to tweet a little teaser uh, to the Mike Kaiser video that's going to go out with this podcast. They've also got some with David McClay Kidd. There's one with Casey Martin, Greg Norman, and uh, we're hoping to kind of do a podcast series with a lot of these guys throughout the course of the year. So uh, don't delay on getting to that, and I won't delay any further. Let's get to our conversation with Mike Kaiser. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Joining us, uh, I believe from Chicago, um, a developer of golf courses in a in a lot of different locations. You've heard of a lot of them, most famously Bandon Dunes. Mr. Mike Kaiser, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. I am in Chicago where it's a beautiful day, and I look forward to a great golf game tomorrow at Shore Acres, which is one of the premier courses in Chicago. Oh, my goodness. That is maybe my favorite golf course in the world. I was actually flipping through doing a bit of research uh, today, and I was list, uh, reading some things you said, and you said that the, uh, I forget if it's the fifth or the sixth, the Beeritz Hole there at Shore Acres was your favorite Beeritz that you ever saw. Is that right? Uh, that is true, uh, in particular because it's like most Biarritz uh, sites, it's totally flat and it's a, just a wonderful green with this uh, trough running through the front of it, and it's fun at Shore Acres because we can't uh, the, the membership can't decide whether to ever pin the front half or not. It's an ongoing debate. Hey, it's it's probably the, the favorite one that I've ever seen. It felt like the widest one, and uh, yeah. gives you plenty of space to actually find it. So. Um, well, first off, I usually I start with questions, but I got to tell you a story first. So back about six years ago, I used to work for a big four accounting firm and I needed to pass my CPA exam in order to get a promotion. And I failed many, many, many times uh, in doing so. And my dad dangled a trip out to Bandon Dunes. Yeah. Said, if you finally if you finally pass this thing, we will go to Bandon Dunes. That was the magic formula that uh, I finally passed and ended up moving to Amsterdam and kind of uh, changed my life after that. So for that, I have to credit you. Uh, and I'm sure you've told the story a million times about about Bandon. But at first, I kind of want to dive into where you learned the game and your golf biography before the development of Bandon. 
So I learned the game as a caddy and a player at the age of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 at the East Aurora Country Club, a really mediocre nine-hole, very hilly golf course, which I thought was the best thing I had ever seen at the age of 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. A typical day consisted of caddying, if we were lucky, for nine holes, uh, playing nine or 18 holes, and having a big, juicy club burger. I did that for five years, and that, that hooked me on golf. That was that was my main beginning, those five years. Wow, was that good! I wish I, I wish every boy and girl could do the same thing. Well, and I'm not sure if the if this question has uh, or the answer to this question has changed since Bandon opened, but I kind of want to go back to the time again, still before Bandon or even before the Dunes Club, which I believe you built in around '85. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's about right. I want to know, like, what were the what were the golf courses or golf experiences you had up to that point that had had the biggest impact on you? So my guide, first of all, um, uh, Chris was the Golf Digest Top Hundred. Uh, I I couldn't believe that that book existed. Someone gave it to me, or I found it. I don't don't know how I ran across it, but that became the Bible to me because I'd only played in Buffalo at courses like East Aurora Country Club and had no idea that there was a hundred best golf courses in the world so that was my guide <coughs> that led me to uh, what so many of your listeners uh, deal with how do you get on one of the top 10 or top 20 golf courses first one I was able to get on due to friends was uh, Marion which I thought was just unbelievable I, I, I so it was sort of an epiphany I've been playing these mediocre golf courses and most golf courses are mediocre and here I was at Marion, this cathedral of golf. Uh, and that was my number one until I got on Pine Valley. And then I understood why Pine Valley was better than Marion. Those, those, those two together, even though I was from Chicago at the time, in Philadelphia, are the ones who turned me on to golf course architecture. And, and then, it's, then it's just a matter of you know how many can you get on and play and see and do your own ranking. So I was sort of a born ranker, which I think most uh, most of your listeners are uh, probably the same thing. How do we get on these top twenty golf courses? Yeah, and that's kind of where I, I wanted to go next. With that, is in the, all the courses I, I believe that you've developed are all public access courses. So you know, as uh, coming up in golf and seeing how maybe it difficult it was to get on some of these courses, did that weigh into any of the ideas you had around the business structure of the resorts you built? Uh, yes, and, and that was reinforced by my trips to Scotland and Ireland, which followed shortly after I played Pine Valley for the first time. I, you know, I said to my group from Buffalo, New York, we've got to we've got to go to Scotland and Ireland and see these these natural links courses. So, which we did, and we realized as we played through, as your listeners have uh, found the same thing, that the best courses, all the courses in Scotland and Ireland, are available to uh, the public even Muirfield you can you know you can get on it's just a matter of how much you pay as opposed to America where the best you know 98 percent of the best courses were private Augusta Pine Valley Marion most people can't get on those courses so that's caused me to say aha if you build a quality golf course in America just like Scotland or Ireland and Dornick was my model I bet the vast majority of public golfers We'll try to get to those courses, and that's that turned out to be the case. 
Yeah, that's what I, I get. Uh, some people will say to us, you know, if we go cover a course internationally, that's expensive. Like, oh, that's too expensive. I, I want to say like, guys, if this course existed in the U.S., you couldn't play it. I mean, that's yeah. kind of the way the way it works with, you know, you know, even some expensive ones like Trump Turnberry and Adair Manor and, and whatnot. They're incredibly expensive, but they're, those kind of places are not accessible in the States. And it makes such a difference in the golf experience to you know, actually be able to walk on the grounds, feel comfortable there. And that's exactly kind of the feeling you get when you step on the ground at grounds at Bandon. I'm glad you've noticed. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've been, I'm reverential about Pebble beach, which is the best public course in America and has been since it was founded a hundred years ago. And they do charge quite a bit. When you think of what the real estate in Carmel is worth, uh, right. you realize that we're probably getting a discount. Not that anyone's going to say, boy, $550 is cheap. Uh, which leads me to tell you to remind you that our pricing is always half of Pebble Beach because they do charge a lot for most most people. I've heard you say you know refer to Dornick being kind of your I don't want to say the model or kind of your the, your biggest inspiration. What specifically about Dornick uh, really kind of resonated with you? Uh, it's to, it's total simplicity. I, I I feel totally comfortable walking into the clubhouse. Pro shop, the town, it's, you know, this little dinky town and the way up in the highlands, there's nothing um, elitist about the place and it's just got a great feel and that's before you tee it up and one of the great first tees right there overlooked by on the hotel overlooking down on it and then 18 fabulous holes on the Firth of Dornick. Uh, there are many other candidates for, you know, what's the best course and what's the best model but Dornick has always been mine. That's that the hotel you're referring to. We were staying there when we were there last summer, and we had a like a 4:10 tea time, and it was 4:06, and it was getting a little bit cold. And we were, I had shorts on, and I literally could run inside to the to our room in the hotel and change by the time we got to our tea time. It's that close to the yeah. to that first tee, and yeah, you do step onto that. You know, after you step past the second hole there, and onto the third hole, and onto that open. I don't. It's not the back nine, but it's basically the whole big part of the property. It does feel just like a, a really special place. I was just curious. Besides Dornick, you know, it sounds like you've played a lot of courses over there. Um, what else really resonated with you, or what kind of not even necessarily the course? What is it about Lynx Golf that kind of struck you the hardest? It's natural beauty. The, you know, the, all the best Lynx courses, from those that are known to those that are not, not known, that they're Lynx courses. They were uh, made with without bulldozers, uh, very gently and sensitively in the natural. Uh, Duneland, and I would characterize them all as just naturally gorgeous, beautiful places. All right, guys, a quick break to let you know about OGO's Back to Summer sale from now through May 31st, 25% off all Alpha Convoy travel bags and backpacks at OGO.com. You're going to see these backpacks and travel bags in both Taurus Sauce Season 3 and Season 4. We got absolutely kitted out from the OGO guys, and it got an incredible amount of pockets and space for all your needs. You've heard me talk about the Mutant travel bag, the golf bag that I use that I, I once was able to get 70 pounds worth of material. That was quite the uh, quite the baggage fee that came with that one, but shows you how much space you can fit in there, and it really helps kind of with the packing for a, a long golf trip where you're able to cram some layers in there. Even though I just found out you're actually not allowed to put clothes in with a golf travel bag, which, 
you know, Delta tried to stop me from doing that, but I went ahead and did it anyways. But the OGO Alpha Convoy travel bags, incredibly durable, made from premium materials, including four-wheel spinners and tons of organization, allows you to customize your packing space. Again, their summer sale is now through May 31st, 25% off all Alpha Convoy travel bags and backpacks at OGO.com. Again, OGO.com, check it out. Let's get back to Mike Kaiser. So and I, I kind of wanted to save Cool Links to the end, but now that we're talking about Dornick, uh, for the listeners that may not be familiar with what Cool Links is or could be or should be, uh, can you get us up to speed on uh, how you discovered that land there and what the latest is on that project? Uh, one mile from Dornick, my favorite, uh, that my, my favorite golf course, frankly, um, even ahead of National Golf Links in America. Uh, one mile from Dornick is uh, the town of Embo, and right next to E-M-B-O, Embo, there is this gorgeous uh, Lynx golf course site, which the uh, no, no one told us about, but the, the Highland Council, which is interested in economic development, came to my uh, friend and partner in Cool Links, uh, Todd Warnick, and said, we would love it if you built a very good golf course, very good Lynx course, close to in, in, in the, not close to in the highlands of uh, Scotland so that we could attract overnight people who right now uh, come from Inverness by bus play Dornick and then go back to Inverness we want them to stay over and we think that if you built a second a second quality golf course you're sort of forgetting about Brora and Goldsby both of which are I think very good golf courses but they said, with one more golf course, we think we can attract people there. So that caused Todd and I to say, what architect do we want to work with? Quirk uh, Crenshaw was the answer. Tom Doak was a close second. And Bill went tramping around there in search of the best site in the Highlands. And he came up with, there was close to anything, and he came up with this site one mile from Dornick just contiguous to the town of Embo, also on the Firth of Dornick, And we've been just enamored of what Bill and Ben have come up with in terms of a routing and have waited for three and a half years for it to grind through the bureaucracy of the very same government that encouraged us to find a site. Hmm. So we are probably three, four, five months away uh, from starting it. Uh, we are enthusiastic about it because it's just this magical routing right on the right on the dunes of EMBO, E-M-B-O. We uh we went out there when we were there last summer, and I, I oh, honestly I honestly thought that that there had already been work done to the land because you can just see where natural fairways would sit, and then it's so incredibly perfect for a golf course. Yeah, I'm glad you you were there, Chris, because that's right. You it, you know most of their holes are just sitting there waiting to become uh, not even shaped, just seeded with fescue. What are some of the difficulties you kind of, you run into with trying to develop a Lynx golf course uh, in in that part of the world or in that kind of uh, territory? Um, a very it's it's true in in uh, California, it's true in Oregon, it's current it's uh, certainly true in the European Union, which is uh, Scotland is a member of the EU. They have these extremely uh, restrictive uh, covenants and statutes about what you can and can't do in these sensitive dunes of in this case, European Union. And you face first governmental groups, um, which are, are bureaucracies that put you through a, a two to three year schedule of check all the boxes. And then the people who hate development of any kind, 
uh, usually based in big cities, and we've got four of them uh, fronting us from London. We're saying we don't want any development whatsoever. We don't care if it's a golf course or a bowling alley. We want no golf. And even though golf impacts 70 acres at the most, they are they fight like crazy for anything in the dunes there or California or Oregon. I use those three. And it takes a while just to uh, to convince everyone that there are only a small number of people who are against golf and tourism in the highlands of Scotland. Is there uh, any development of any other golf courses in Scotland in dunescapes? Have that has that worked against you in any way? Funny that you mentioned it, Chris. Uh, like it's like you have inside information, or <laughs> the the people over there say you didn't make it any better by having Donald Trump go before you because he has rankled a lot of people. I can't tell you just why. You know, he promised to build this huge resort, and he's only done eighteen holes, which I hear are very good in in uh, Aberdeen. But I've had a number of people tell me that if it weren't for Trump, you'd, you would have gotten approval by now. So mm-hmm. you can sort of pick your theory. I don't, yeah. I don't have one. I'm just waiting to get approval. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that it seems to be trending toward towards approval because it is. Uh, I understand exactly what you mean and that it would kind of transform Dornick uh, into a destination place instead of a, yeah. a, a pop-in, pop-out place. But. Um, not too not too often. I'm sure when you get interviewed, is do people lead with cool links instead of going straight for Bandon? But I had so many questions on Bandon, I wanted to uh, to make sure we talked about something else as well. But uh, I, this is probably the part where you've told a million times. But what was the first time you heard about the land on which Bandon Dunes would eventually be built? And were you dead set like on Oregon? Were you setting out specifically to to build a golf course? What was kind of the order of operations there? The order of operations was I had given up on the East Coast. My friend Howard McKee. Um, an architect and land use planner and very good friend said, uh, and he's from uh, he's from Portland. He said, why why don't you look in the West Coast? Uh, we've got all this beautiful Duneland in uh, in Northern California and in the st- state of Oregon. Why don't you look there? Which was prescient on his part. Uh, he did, he was not a golfer, but it turned out that in the area that I finally found because a broker from Gold Beach, or, uh, Oregon, called me out of the blue and said, I don't know anything about golf, but um, you know, there, there's this place that's been for sale for four and a half years. It's 1,200 acres, a mile of ocean frontage, huge dunes, covered in Scottish gorse and broom, and I don't know anything about golf, but you might want to consider it. And I bought it three weeks later from the three old guys who were became friends from Seattle, and uh, that was that was that's sort of a quick rendition of how we found it. Was it available at a very fair price? And it was it. I mean, and what was kind of the process of getting all the gorse cleared out of there? It was a very fair price because they had been they kept lowering the price, waiting for someone to come along to buy twelve hundred acres in the middle of nowhere. And I did, and I offered them half of what they were asking, and they, in 30 minutes, said, "We've caucused, and we're gonna we're gonna say yes. You go <laughs> go right ahead." Removing gorse was the was the thing that got us approval. That Oregon is not an easy place to develop anything anywhere, especially on the coast. And various groups were against golf, uh, and what finally won them over, and my friend Howard McKee was the one who convinced them that if they didn't let me build a golf course. The site, the 1,200-acre site, would continue to be overgrown in Scottish gorse, which was an invasive uh, plant, and takes over everything. And the uh, the the anti-groups said, you know, that's true. 
um, we'd rather get rid of gorse than stop a, a golf course. So go ahead and build a golf course. And they've said the same thing for each of the five now that are going into Bannon or, or who are at Bannon. Yeah, I do want to talk about each of those courses, but uh, I kind of first also want to know, and we talked about some of the golf courses that had influenced you, but part of what makes Bannon Dunes works is the model. So, and I imagine that there was some trepidation in some way of this remote location, but was there any other oh. locations that were kind of remote or any any kind of projects you saw that said, hey, that worked there, why can't this work here? Uh, that's happened since then, Chris, but at the time, um, you know, for uh, Chicago, I was born in Buffalo, then Chicago, just to conceive of Oregon where it rains, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just to, con- that was the, that was the wildest idea I had come up, uh, I had run into. And the fact that it was such a perfect place to build golf, um, that's why I did it. But I, no, I, until, until Bannon Dunes began attracting people to tell me about even more remote places like Tasmania. Bannon was about as re- remote as any of my friends and I both considered for golf. Well, what is when you're crunching the numbers and you're saying uh, we need to have this many rounds played and and to to you know for this thing to survive? What kind of what were those numbers look like and what uh, what did it actually ended up playing out? The numbers said no way this makes sense, no way whatsoever. <laughs> this is the hairbrained hairbrained idea, um, and I agreed with that. Uh, I didn't bother going to a bank because a bank wouldn't have loaned money. Um, I happened to have enough money to build the golf course, and that was a, that was a virtue. But no one I talked to uh, thought it was a good idea. And let's say that that was the, quote, truth until uh, my prayer of breaking even the first year, of, which is roughly 10,000 rounds, the first year was 24,000 rounds. Wow. And that caused me to rush to Tom Doak to build a second course and rush to uh, Coor and Crenshaw to build a third course. And three sort of made the destination. Uh, the, the next two have been fun to do. And add uh, a good deal, I can't give you a percentage, but add a lot to the flavor of, the, of being there. And you'll soon, Chris, be able to play five golf courses because, and you'll want to play five. You already know you like the first four, the fifth, could be the best, the Sheep Ranch. That's what I hear. I'm uh, excited to, to hear about oh. that one and talk about that one. But what was, uh, how do you get the first wave of golf golfers there? I mean, was it, what was kind of the big break? Did you have golf publications talking about it, the hype? I mean, this is pre social exactly. media era, but how did you get, how did people end up out there? Uh, Kemper Sports Management has been, ex- they do a number of things well. They manage the resort at Bannon Dunes and do a great job. And I think they do an even better job, a superlative job in the PR piece. Uh, they made sure that all the golf magazines um, knew about it. Uh, I remember Golf Week did a uh, cover story early on, written by Jim Achenbach from Portland, basically saying, Lynx Golf has come to America. And that, as you know, uh, your, your audience are readers of uh, for the time being, the golf magazines, Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, and Golf Week, and that's what made it happen. You guys, and I was one of them, read about it and said, gee, I'm going to have to get there. And the first year, 24,000 came. We will do uh, 170,000 rounds this year on Jeez. five golf courses, including the par three. And next year, it'll go up with the with the um, sheep ranch. Hmm. Amazing. 
That's really it. Really is. I mean, it's we avid golfers will go anywhere to play uh, true links golf, and that's what you know. What stuck out to me, um, the, the first links golf I ever played was at Bandon. I had never been to the UK and Ireland, and um, after I played at Bandon in 2013, and then I got to play just a ton of golf in the UK and Ireland, and just absolutely fell in love with links golf. And I came back home and I thought, you know, I, I'd like to go back to Bannon, but gosh, it's it's that's not the real thing. Like the real stuff is in Ireland and Scotland. And then I went back to Bannon last year and thought, this is even better than I remember it. Like it's not only is it the real thing. I mean, it is the most authentic links experience you could possibly have anywhere. And that's I think that's so hard to do and execute properly on a on a new golf course that isn't one of the classically designed links golf courses. Aren't those architects who did Bannon Dunes great? I mean, you know, they're the one. I get I get more credit than they do, but I they should get more credit than I by a good deal. Well, I want to talk about David McClay Kid because he was on the podcast last year and he told the story of how he got the job. But I'd love to hear you tell it and see if there's any uh, any discrepancies in the story at all. Uh, from my point of view, I couldn't find anyone to do a links course that I the the two that I found were Kirk Crenshaw. And they were working for my friend Dick Young's cap at Sand Hills, so I didn't want to, I didn't want to be the second course to Dick. He was going to beat me time wise. And Tom Doak was actually Tom Doak was probably my first choice, barely nudging Queer Crenshaw. But Tom at the time was terrible Tom Doak, who the industry uh, couldn't stand. He was this um, idiot savant type. And even though I liked him, and and I and I knew that he he of all the people I knew about could do links golf. He was so unpopular in the industry that I felt that I couldn't lead with him for fear of it being, Oh, this is Tom Doak's, you know, that it would be attacked. So that left me with nobody. You don't hire a brand name architect. Uh, like my friend, Tom Fazio is a brilliant architect in my opinion, but he would have done a Tom Fazio course, not a links course. He would protest and say that he, could do a links course, but <laughs> I didn't quite believe that. And therefore, I didn't know who to turn to. And just about that time, Glen Eagles Golf Development has had popped up in Scotland to build golf courses, to build links courses and golf courses around the world. And I was the first uh, prospect that they came to see, and they uh, dangled David Kidd, age 26, to me as someone who grew up with links golf and with his dad, who was the master superintendent for Glen Eagles, the two of them together, I was told by their sales guy, my friend Ian Ferrier, the two together will give you a links course. So because I had no one, I had no one else. I hired David and Jimmy, and and knew that if they were um, bad, I would fire them, and they were good, really good, really, really, really good. Yeah. What was it that they said in the kind of interview process, or what? Anything there that really stuck out to you and saying this is the vision that I have for this place? Uh, they grew up, uh, David grew up at McRahanish, doing uh, McRahanish, where uh, Jimmy, his dad, had a house. So their statement was basically, we know dunes. We're Scottish. We live and breathe dunes. And uh, if you want any, any better example, come visit us in McRahanish, which I did, and see that you, you grew up in the East Aurora Country Club. We grew up, David uh, grew up at uh, McRahanish. And I did, and frankly, my visit to Macrahanish convinced me that they could do something that felt like Macrahanish. 
Is there is there any truth to the statement or the the point that uh, that David said that at one point the vision was potentially for the clubhouse to be where the 16th hole is currently, and that he had suggested moving the clubhouse inland to use that that real estate for the best golf holes? Is there any uh, any truth to that that statement? That is totally true. Um, hmm. I had an expert. I will not name him, but he was an expert in golf, and he said this is where the clubhouse should go. And it was right where the 16th green had ended up being. And David, with support from Howard McKee, who felt equally strongly, said, that is a ridiculous waste of uh, waste of good golf space. You want to build a Lynx course that actually does well, that's where your golf course should be. And you, you'll move the clubhouse back as far as it takes to be out of the way of the golf course. To which Howard added, um, and this it trumped even what David said. Howard said, uh, where are the beer trucks going to go? Where's the parking lot going to go? <laughs> and that stopped my expert guy right there. He did not have an answer that was even cogent. So in about uh, 15 minutes, David and Howard McKee moved the, the uh, clubhouse back to where you know it is. What, how involved are you in the actual design process of golf holes? Because uh, David wrote an article recently, um, I believe it was in the Golfer's Journal, about designing the 16th hole at Bandon and his thought process, which also included consideration on whether or not you would approve the hole. So how, are, how, how involved are you, uh, I guess, in the whole process? Um, I trust the architects I use, but you know we all make mistakes and we all can be improved. So I, 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 they know that I approve the routing. The single most, the single biggest thing to a golf course is the routing, where the holes go, and uh, the second biggest thing is what the greens look like, what the order their shapes. So they all know that I don't have to bless every single bunker that they put in. And I don't need to bless the six to eight tees we put in any golf course, but I do need to approve the routing and approve the greens. And they've been great about that. What uh, what lessons would you say you learned maybe from the Dunes Club, the club that you opened before Bandon? Uh, if you want to build a golf course, sand is the material you want to build it on. If you And most of the sand in the... I can't say that. A lot of the sand in the world is found on uh, oceanfront. So if you can find an oceanfront oceanfront site, which will have sand and build it there. You know where the uh, one of the best sand dunes in America is? Is it uh, Wisconsin? Uh, that's a good one, but that's <laughs> that's pretty flat. No, the the, the very best in America is uh, in in order, uh, Colorado. Colorado National Park at the Sand Dune National Park in Colorado. I was just looking at photos of this huge national park, which is all sand. Make would make uh, a great golf course. Hmm. I want to talk a bit about uh, your philosophy on accommodations and and hospitality. And first, I'd like to hear you like you describe your approach, and I'll do, I'll give you my experience as a visitor to, to the resorts. So I want to do. This is where um, Dornick is another model. I want I want. Uh, the Dornick Hotel. It's not fancy by any means. I wish the uh, soundproofing between walls was better and as good as Bannon Dunes, but that was sort of my model. And and in, and in beyond that, in in general, the Scottish and Irish um, experiences with lodging is pretty simple. They're, they're, it's not set up to be luxurious, and that's not, way, not why most people play golf. It's just uh, it accommodates you. Comfortable, Showers at work, not much more than that. 
So my approach is not five star or even four star, but genuine three star three star experience. That's that's pretty much how I describe it. I always say the nicer the room, the more guilty I feel about not spending any time in it because you want to spend your time there out on the golf course. You're there to yeah. get, catch a little bit of sleep and then get right back at it. And the one thing that's always kind of stuck out to me, and I was I was curious to hear how you've achieved this is the service with the staff is. It's the maybe the best service because they serve you great, but they're not kissing your ass, and that is a very hard balance to reach. You know, it's very, you know, some higher end resorts will really, you know, do everything for you, but at Bannon, it seems like everyone has the philosophy of, hey, I want you to have a great time, and I want you to go tell your friends how great of a time this is, and I want you to come back forever. How do you how do you instill that within within an entire staff? Uh, it is not by training. I, my my answer is sort of simplistic, but I think it's true. Uh, the people of rural America and certainly rural Oregon, which Bannon qualifies, are just authentically nice. And that and what you're commenting on is how uncitified uh, they are. They're they're country people and just delighted you're there visiting. I know that sounds simple, but um, I'm convinced that's true. And you touched on you touched on this a couple times in uh, the two things I want to kind of bring together here and the success of the of Bandon Dunes rushed you to uh, to start going on the second course, but you said it was kind of a, Tom Doak was a bit untouchable at the moment uh, for the opening course. A couple years later, when Pacific Dunes opened, why was he uh, the first guy that you called? Uh, because I uh, going in, I thought he was he was the number one choice, except for his unpopularity. So when uh, when David did his his uh, great thing, Tom was next on the list. Bill uh, Bill and Ben were next, as I explained, but they had already done Sand Hills. So I was I went with Tom, uh, and that causes me to, to to say that I think one of the successes, one of the reasons for success at Bannon Dunes is the architects were different for each course, which is as you know unusual in multi-course settings. Yeah, and that's and I see this with Bandon, and I see it with Streamsong now with the opening of their black courses. I think kind of this formula yeah. of you have two successful golf courses. I I I, I have of the opinion that Bandon Dunes and Pacific Dunes are pretty similar golf courses. The red and the blue at Streamsong pretty similar golf courses. Uh-huh. The black is starkly different than the other two, and Bandon Trails is also starkly different than to Bandon and Pacific. So was that a was that a conscious thing to say? All right, this third course has to be a very different experience than the two we already have. Uh, actually, no. I mean, that was the land we had left at the time. That's what we had. And you should, you probably know that Bill and Ben heard from all their friends and advisors, don't take the third course job. You're being, <laughs> you're getting a, a less good site. And it was, it was uh, the, what I offered them initially was in the woods. So it would have been 18 holes in the forest, beautiful forest, but you know, we've seen forest courses before and Bill and Ben took it uh, in part because they thought they could convince Howard McKee and me that they shouldn't be in the forest. They should be out in the meadow and the dunes, which they did. They convinced Howard and me to change the the footprint of the what became Bannon Trails from most from all woods to ten holes in the meadows and the dunes of on the other side of that big dune there. Well, I remember thinking, you know, hearing about trails and. I just it doesn't obviously photograph the way Bandon Dunes does and Pacific Dunes does, and it just 
I, I wasn't thrilled to go play it or super excited. And I went out and played it. And being amongst those those pines and that quiet feeling that's back there, once we emerged back out of them and back towards the ocean, I, th- I thought, wow, once, I didn't think about the ocean the entire time. And two, I'm kind of upset to be leaving this this serene setting back in these trees. It's all, It's a special, different kind of brilliance that comes with it. Yeah, the, the truth is, you probably know this, Chris, that uh, if you polled 100 people at Bannon Dunes, what's your favorite course? It's roughly equal. Each, each course has an equal following. Pacific Dunes, Bannon Dunes are both probably 28%, and Trails and Old MacDonald are 22%, but it's no different than that. And that's the that's what the owner of a resort or a multi-course place prays for, that they're all about equal. And I think... The Sheep Ranch, the fifth course, is going to be the favorite of 20% of the people. Well, I was going to say this question for last about how everyone loves to debate their favorite courses at Bandon, but I'll ask you this in a, in a different way, in that you get your last round of your golf that you're ever going to play is tomorrow, and it's going to be at one of the courses at Bandon. Which one do you choose to play your last round of golf? It's a tough one, because that really would, uh, I would try not to answer the question, but I know you're going to insist that I answer <laughs> it. Um to be politically incorrect with the three that I don't pick, but it would be Old MacDonald. Hmm. Why is that? To me, it's an old course at a St. Andrews experience. It's the closest thing to the old course that I've seen other than the old course. And what was the mindset, I guess, the philosophy behind, you know, obviously the course is named after, uh, is a tribute to C.B. McDonald. Um, it w- was this kind of a dream that you had of like, all right, we've se- these, these other courses are wide. Now we're going to give you extra, extra wide. No, it actually wasn't that. That was Tom Doak. Um, I, I called Tom as the, uh, the encyclopedic memory guy and said, you know, Tom, the the best or second best golf course in the world in 1920 was the Lido course in Long Island, which disappeared. What, what do you think if we brought back the Lido course on my site in Bandon? And he thought a lot about it and wanted to say, what a great idea, but Tom is very good this way. And he said, you know, uh, I understand why you want to do it, but I don't think the site fits Lido, which he knew very well, the routing of Lido. What you could do, Mike, is uh, to do an homage to C.B. McDonald, who you like uh, the best of any architect who's ever practiced, and just sort of do McDonald-like holes that fit that site. And I thought that was a brilliant comeback on his part and hired him and Jim Urbina to do Old McDonald as if it were Old McDonald, not Old McDonald, as if it were C.B. McDonald designing it. And I think they did a pretty good job they are the reason it's so wide they are the reason that the greens are so big because if you use national golf links as the model both of them uh, not both of them uh, national has wide fairways and big greens that's the course that I think is probably the most important for people to know something about before they go play and kind of really understand uh, yeah. and that's, that's kind of, uh, it's something that uh, the caddies, the caddy we had, uh, squid was our, our guy. He explained it to us really well and kind of talked us through it, which we kind of had an idea, but I, I have a feeling that a lot of people that are resort guests wouldn't necessarily know, uh, why it's called old McDonald or what it is an actual tribute to. But, um, you've hinted at this a couple times and we finally get to talk about it now, but the sheep ranch, I gotta be honest, 
up until the last couple months, I've always been really confused as to what the Sheep Ranch is. And I know there's been some really good uh, pieces uh, pub- published in recent months about what's going on there. And we've talked some with Keith Reb, who's done some work up there. But uh, for those that aren't familiar with what the Sheep Ranch is and what it will be, could you uh, get us up to speed? Uh, it's been available to public play for um, almost almost uh, 15 years now. And most people don't go there because they don't know about it and it's not connected to the resort. It's owned 50, It's the only piece of land that I own 50-50 with anybody. And my old greeting card uh, partner and pal, Phil Friedman, uh, helped me buy it back when I was stretched money-wise. And has been he it's he sort of adopted it as his site and he hired Tom Doak and Jim Urbina to build 13 green sites on what used to be a gorse field. He removed the gorse, and rather than let the gorse grow back, he said, "Well, why don't we have as much as much golf as Tom and Jim can fit on there?" He gave them a very small budget and they built 13 greens. And the idea is much like the old course at St Andrews in its early going. There was no specific routing. People would make it up as they went, and that's what that's what it was. And now, what will it be here in the coming months or coming years? Now it will be a Bill Coor, Ben Crenshaw, amazing uh, golf course. Just just in terms of the visuals, they they have they were able to uh, locate fifty. Uh, uh, they were able to locate nine greens right on the ocean bluff. So if you think of uh, Bannon Dunes, number sixteen. They have nine greens that look pretty much just like 16 at Bannon Dunes. And the inland holes are only uh, long par four away from the ocean. So it's basically this, every hole is on the ocean. Hmm. It's, uh, having been there twice in the last month, it's quite astonishing. And when it grows in green, it will be something like uh, you've never seen before, Chris. Awesome. I'm excited to see it. I'm, I have a couple more banding questions, and I want to touch on a couple others, and then uh, i got to let you go. We're taking up a lot of time with uh, with banding, but there's so much to talk about. But uh, Do you have a favorite hole in the property? Uh, 16 at Bannon Dunes. I thought that might be the answer. And are we allowed Are we allowed to discuss the secret tee on the 17th hole at Bandon Dunes? Yes, we can. <laughs> yes. Uh, we thought the 17 was a great par four as designed. Come off the 16th green, my favorite. Uh, tee it up, play 17 as a par four. But if if there's no one in back of you, um, it all, we also found a great uh, par three site, par three tee site, uh, which is about 180 yards from the green. It's right on Cut Creek, that uh, depra- that uh, creek that runs right 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 beside it. And if you've got no one in back of you, and anyone is welcome to find that tee, the caddies know where it is, and play basically two holes in one. Hmm. Yeah, we uh, our caddy took us up there to play that one when we were, when we were back there, so uh, it was pretty cool. I got a slide. I, I got to be. I'm obligated to say we we're not even gonna we're gonna skip past Bannon Preserve and the Punch Bowl. That's, that's the amount of things that Bannon Dunes has to offer. But I want to make sure I ask about Barnboogle Dunes and how uh, how you got involved in that in that project. You know, going from building a golf course on the west coast uh, of Oregon to building it in even more remote location in Bridport, Tasmania. How did you get involved in that process, and what was that project like? I was standing on the 2B 10th green, uh, 10th tee, sorry, 10th tee of Pacific Dunes with Tom Doak, and I said, Tom, that's a part three that you, you look down on the, on, the, on the green. It's a great view of the Pacific Ocean and golf in front of you, and I said, Tom, 
there can't be a better site in go for golf in the in the world than this that hasn't been done, and here we are doing it. So I was sort of boastful, and Tom said, "Well, Mike, uh, there is actually a site that I think is as good, and it's down in Bar Bridport, Tasmania." Um, where, where I'm talking with someone who knows nothing about golf and trying to con convince him to build a golf course, um, you should see it. And it just turned out that I was looking for something to do in uh, Christmas vacation when my son Michael was at Santa Clara University. So instead of his coming home and drinking beer every night for 30 days, I took him to what, came, what became to be Barn Bugle Dunes in Tasmania to look at, fall in love with, this great golf course site that Tom Doak was going to design and took on the uh, job with Tom to convince Richard Sattler, who's now my good friend, to build a golf course. He knew nothing about golf. He knew he knew hotels, sheep, cattle, and potatoes, but knew nothing about golf. And Tom and I together convinced him that he wanted to put his entire net worth into what became Barn Bugle Dunes. And the, the thing that convinced Richard, who's a savvy business guy, is visiting Bannon Dunes. And he basically concluded, if this works here, my site in Bridport is at least as good. I'll do it. We sort of dared him to do it, and he did. And the result is Barnbugle Dunes and its companion golf course, Lost Farm, by Bill Corb. And that's what amazed me about the about Barnboogle and Lost Farm is one how little Richard did know about golf and how at the same time you know I, I believe it was uh, Bill Core that had laid out twenty holes at Lost Farm and he said pick the best eighteen and he went and researched and said hey St Andrews used to have twenty two holes build all twenty <laughs> let's make a twenty hole golf course and how outside the box he was willing to go because he wasn't anywhere close to the box with his golf knowledge. That's right, but he, he, Richard is a great entrepreneur and a quick study, and I had I'd forgotten that, but that was a great work on Richard's, uh, on Richard's um, st uh, watch, and all, all four of his kids are involved in the golf course now. He went from knowing nothing about golf to all four kids are in the business. That was one of the more memorable golf experiences I think we've ever had was uh, taking a little a little tiny plane and landing on a little dirt runway next to Barn Boogle and going out and being on the first tee 30 minutes later was uh, was quite a thrill. Um, yeah, I've done that too. Getting through a couple more here, and i got to let you go, but uh, Cabot as well, um, you know that's a project you've been involved in, and uh, how did you get involved in that one? And again, another remote location up in Canada. Um. Ben Cowan Dewar is the reason I got involved. He was uh, persistent as all get out and wouldn't let me uh, get away without visiting. So he was he was the reason. He he found it, and it's a long story, but he was he was sold. Uh, he's uh, he's always wanted to build a golf course. And lastly, Sand Valley. Uh, Sand Valley was Josh Lesnick from Kemper Sports Management. When I heard about Sand Valley, I said, it's, there's no ocean. I can't possibly be interested in that. But uh, <laughs> you seem like a nice guy, Craig Haltom. Uh, I'll send Josh up there, and he'll tell me why I shouldn't do it. <laughs> and you end up doing it. <laughs> and I ended up doing it. All right, Mike, i got to let you go there. Uh, thank you so much for the time and uh, for, for giving us some amazing insights and uh, for everything you've done for the game of golf. It's been, a, it's been some of my favorite golf experiences I've ever had. So uh, thank you for coming on and hope to do it again sometime. Thanks, Chris, very much. You're good questions. See you soon. Bye. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
How about in? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect 